Welcome back, brothers and sisters. This is Seed Wars number 30. And we've been looking at the account between Abram and King Nimrod, two very important characters that were present just after the flood. And Nimrod is such an important character because he is truly the prototypical nemesis, the, um, the archetype of uh, the future Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, as well as he is, Nimrod is the archetype of the Antichrist. We know that King Nimrod is the first rebellious king after the flood who basically leads the whole world astray. He, he brings mankind into everything from idolatry, um, making uh, gods of stone and wood, he teaches them witchcraft and sorcery and astrology and worshiping, you know, the sun and the moon and the stars. All of the abominations that transpired before the flood, we see those abominations being revived through the person of King Nimrod. That's how influential and powerful this man was. And I believe as the lectures go forward, we're going to see that he was a gibberim, a mighty one, a uh, that he was a, most likely a hybrid. And, and it's through this serpent seed DNA, um, that's how all of the knowledge and the, uh, the mystery religions of the, of the past are revived. Is, is that's who the serpent seed is. That's, that's their job. They're going to promote these things and they're going to um, continue to rule the world with the goal of bringing about this new world order system. And that's what Nimrod wanted. He wanted to control the whole planet. He wanted to build Babylon. He wanted the Tower of Babel where all men would come together in one accord. And you know, he, he, that's why his system serves as the last days system, what we refer to as the B system. Right now on planet Earth, we're clearly seeing the formation of the one world B system. It hasn't fully manifested yet, but as we speak, you know, the New World Order are taking the necessary steps to help solidify that, that system. And eventually, um, the Antichrist will take the throne. He'll, he'll take his presence on the scene, and he will be the revived and resurrected Nimrod of yesteryear. And so... Not only do I just personally find these Old Testament stories interesting, and I think there's a lot of value in just learning them and studying them, but Nimrod's important because um, understanding Nimrod and, and the world back then will help us understand uh, the future uh, beast system and the Antichrist system that's almost upon us now. So Nimrod's the first rebel king after the flood. Um, we know that he chose Terah to be his prince of the host. That's, that was Abram's dad. He was promoted to be the number one guy under Nimrod, which was a pretty big deal. And when Terah uh, had his first child, Abram, we know that there was a prophecy from the astrologers about Abram that he was going to be a very prominent man. In fact, he was going to be a threat to Babylon and Nimrod. And so... You know, Nimrod wanted to destroy him the same way that Pharaoh wanted to destroy Moses, the same way that Herod wanted to destroy Jesus. All of these 
prophetic providential men in history and in God's story were always a threat to the seed of the serpent. But of course, um, God's always one step ahead of the enemy, so they're never able to thwart God's plan. So we know that Abram was whisked away into a cave and, and he was preserved as a baby and eventually he goes uh, moves in with Noah and Shem and he's under the tutelage of these two patriarchs for 40 years. This is where he's going to learn everything. All of his manners, all of his etiquette, all of the rules, all of the laws, all of the virtues, everything to do with the Torah, everything to do with the clean and unclean animals, the whole nine yards. Abram is being groomed for being the father of many nations. And, um, and so that's where he's at. Meanwhile, his father Terah continues to be an idolater reigning underneath Nimrod. That's all he knows. That's all he's ever known. And it's interesting, in the last lecture, we looked at, you know, there comes a point when Abram, who's about 15 year old, years old, says, hey, I'm ready to bust out of here for a little while and go pay my father a visit and just scope things out in Babylon. And when he goes to see Terah, he finds that Terah has a large room with 12 large idols made of wood and stone that actually represent the 12 months of the year, the zodiac. And, you know, we, we looked at the story of how Abram ended up destroying those idols. And that's, that's an interesting uh, account. From there, we see that ultimately Nimrod wants to destroy Abram. And he's going to pursue Abram and throw him in prison. And his wise counsel has decreed that Abram himself should be burned in the fire. In fact, it's on account of Abram destroying his father's idols that lands him in trouble with Nimrod because Terah goes and he explains to Nimrod what his son has done and his uh, Nimrod brings Abram before him and he challenges Abram. And as we're gonna see here in this lecture, Abram uh, is not afraid of Nimrod, and he's going to tell him like it is. And um, we're going to see how this saga continues between Abram and Nimrod. The other thing I'd like to add before we move on is just the fact that back in this day, even though it was a long time ago, we cannot underestimate the sophistication of that time. That many of the ancient writings reveal to us that ancient Babylon was a magnificent place. They had a significant architectural prowess beyond any others of their era. And this is a, a, a image of it over here on the right. <clears throat> we see the long stairwell going up with all of the pillars and the royal arches and <clears throat> the causeways, you know, the waterways passing through. In the back, we see a large tower of Babel this is where the famous hanging gardens of Babylon, known as one of the seven wonders of the world with the fountains, you know, they had all that back then. This is where the original Babylonian mystery religion is born. Um, all of the architecture of the Masonic faith um, was created by these uh, high leading Babylonians. And, and that's all packaged into this religion that would be passed down from culture to culture to culture. It's the same 
satanic, sorcery, witchcraft, mystery religion that exists today, the ones who put the Masonic symbols on the dollar bill, the ones who de uh, design Washington, D.C., um, the Eiffel Tower and all the other big monuments around the planet, these are the ones, these are the guys running the show. And they're the same cabal that have always existed on the planet. There's always been that 1% leadership who are those in the know, the secret hidden hand who are controlling everything, have all the money, have all the power, have all the knowledge. They do all the initiations, all the rituals, and they keep it all in the family. And they pass it down from father to son and father to son. And only the wealthy aristocratic leadership of the world are invited to the party. And they control all of the peasants and all of the people on the planet. And that's who it was in Babylon's day. It was a guy named Nimrod and his, you know, cabinet who were running the show. And eventually that passed on to the pharaohs of Egypt. And one day it moved on to the Caesars of Rome. And now today it's the presidents and the European parliament and all of those people, you know, that are, that are running the planet. And all the billionaire international bankers, they're all part of it. And so understanding that um, it's religion mixed with architecture is the uh, Masonic faith. Now, in the last lecture, we learned that Abram was a brave man. He actually went before Nimrod and told him that he was a fool, that he was a simple man and an ignorant king. And he condemned Nimrod right to his face. And Nimrod tossed him into prison. He gathered his wise counsel, and they decided that, that Abram needed to be burned in the fire. And we learned that the king's men began to build up the furnace. And for three days and three nights, they got the hottest fire together that they could possibly get. And now it's time to throw pitch Abram into the fire. And we'll pick it up in Jasher 12. When Abram was come, the conjurers of the king and the sages, they saw Abram, and they cried out to the king, saying, Our sovereign Lord, surely this is the same man whom we know to have been the child at whose birth the great star swallowed the four stars, which we declared to the king now fifty years ago. And behold, now his father has also transgressed thy commands, and he mocked thee by bringing thee another child, which thou did kill. And when the king heard these words, he was exceedingly wroth, and he ordered Terah to be brought before him. And the king said, Hast thou heard what the conjurers have spoken? Now tell me truly, how didst thou? And if thou shalt speak truth, thou shalt be acquitted. And seeing that the king's anger was so much kindled, Terah said to the king, My lord and king, thou hast heard the truth, and what the sages have spoken is right. And the king said, How could thou do this thing, to transgress my orders, and to give me a child that thou did not beget, and to take value for him? See, we're learning that Terah not only took the handmaid's child and brought it to Nimrod to, to be destroyed, but he received payment for that. And Terah answered the king, Because my tender feelings were excited for my son at that time, I took a son of my handmaid and I brought him to the king. And the king said, Who advised you to do this? Tell me, do not hide it from me, and then or thou shalt die. 
And Terah was greatly terrified in the king's presence, and he said to the king, It was Haran, my eldest son, who advised me to do this. And Haran was in those days that Abram was born 32 years old. But Haran did not advise his father to anything, for Terah said this to the king in order to deliver his soul from the king, for he feared greatly. And the king said to Terah, Haran thy son who advised you to do this shall also die through the fire with Abram. For the sentence of death is upon him for having rebelled against the king's desire in doing this thing. So we see that we have to understand that Terah is still a corrupt man. Abraham's father was still a corrupt man. He was serving other gods. There was demonic forces at work in his life. And now that he's fallen under the affliction of Nimrod, and he thinks that Nimrod's going to kill him, he ends up selling his oldest son down the river by saying that Abram's older brother, Haran, who was 32 years old at the time of Abram's birth, he's the one who put me up to this idea to bring the handmaid's servant, child. And so now Haran's going to be punished as well even though he had nothing to do with it. Verse 18, And Haran at that time felt inclined to follow the ways of Abram, but he kept it within himself. And Haran said in his heart, and this is an important detail, Behold, now the king has seized Abram on account of these things which Abram did, and it shall come to pass that if Abram prevails over the king, well, then I'll follow him. But if the king prevails over Abram, then I'll follow after the king. In other words, even though Haran felt inclined, inclined to follow Abram, he kept that within himself, and he said to himself, I'm just going to play both sides here. And whoever's the winner, that's the side that I'm going to join in order to save myself. And when Terah had spoken this to the king concerning Haran and his son, the king ordered Haran to be seized with Abram, and they brought them both, Abram and Haram his brother, to cast him into the fire, and all the inhabitants of the land, and the king's servants and princes, and all the women and little ones were there. And the king's servants took Abram and his brother, and they stripped him of all their clothes except their lower garments, and they bound their hands and feet with linen cords, and the servants of the king lifted them up, and he casted them both into the fire. And the Lord loved Abram, and he had compassion over him because he was the promised seed. And the Lord came down and he delivered Abram from the fire and he was not burned. But all the cords with which they bound him were burned while Abram remained and walked about in the fire. But Haran died when they had cast him into the fire and he was burned to ashes for his heart was not perfect with the Lord. And those men who cast him into the fire, the flame of the fire spread over them and even they were burned, and twelve of Nimrod's men died. And Abram walked in the midst of the fire three days and three nights. And all the servants of the king saw him walking in the fire, and they came and told the king, saying, Behold, we have seen Abram walking about in the midst of the fire, and even the lower garments which were upon him are not burned, but the cord with which he was bound was burned. So we see that Abram was preserved supernaturally by God in the fire for three days and three nights. 
Now, obviously, this has to have some typology. We know that Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. We know that Jesus spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so I believe that this is all typology. Abram was a type of Christ to liberate the Hebrews. Moses was a type of Christ. I'm not saying that they were the Messiah, but they were a typology and a figure of Christ. And when Abram came out of the fire, the king and all of his servants saw Abram. And the king said to Abram, How is it that thou was not burned in the fire? And Abram said to the king, The God of heaven and earth, in whom I trust, and who has all of his power, he delivered me from the fire into which you did cast me. And Haran, the brother of Abram, was burned to ashes, and they sought for his body, and they found it consumed. And Haran was 82 years old when he died in the fire of Chasdom. And the king, the princes, and the inhabitants of the land, seeing that Abram was delivered from the fire, they came and bowed down to Abram. And Abram said to them, Do not bow down to me, but bow down to the God of the world who made you, and serve him, and go in his ways. For it is he who delivered me from out of the fire, and it is he who created the souls and spirits of all men. And he formed man in his mother's womb, and he brought him forth into the world. And it is he who delivered those who trust in him from all pain. And this thing seemed very wonderful in the eyes of the king and the princes, that Abram was saved from the fire and that Haran was burned. And the king gave Abram many presents, and he gave him his two head servants from the king's house. The name of one was Oni, and the name of the other was Eliezer. Now, we're not told any of this in the Bible. We are told in Genesis 15 that Abram said, Lord God, what will thou give to me since I'm go say I go childless? And the steward of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And so that appears to be a corroborating detail, in my opinion, that Eliezer of Damascus, which was in the area of Babylon, is the steward of Abraham's house in Genesis 15, which was many chapters after this event would have happened. So we're learning here that Nimrod was in such awe of Abram being preserved supernaturally that he actually gave him one of his servants, Eliezer, who would later become the steward of Abram's house. And all the kings and the princes and the servants gave Abram many gifts of silver and gold and pearls. And the king and his princes sent him away, and he went in peace. And Abram went forth from the king in peace, and many of the king's servants followed him, and about 300 men joined him. And Abram returned on that day, and he went to his father's house, he and the men that followed him, and Abram served the Lord his God all the days of his life, and he walked in the ways, and he followed his laws. And from that day forward, Abram inclined the hearts of the sons of men to serve the Lord. And at that time, Nahor and Abram took unto themselves wives, the daughters of their dead brother Haran. The wife of Nahor was Milcah, and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And so we're learning that because Abram's older brother Haran had died in the fire, we know that the Bible says that it was customary at that time 
for a brother to take his dead brother's wife as his own so that the, the name of his brother could be preserved. And so this all has continuity with what the scripture teaches, that Abram and Nahor took Haran's daughters, Milcah and Sarai, and these would become the women who would later have Lot and Isaac. Now this is what the Palestinian Targum has to say about this situation. These are the generations of Terah. Terah begat three boys, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran begat Lot. And it was when Nimrod had cast Abram into the furnace of the fire because he would not worship his idol that the fire had no power to burn him. But Haran's heart became doubtful, saying, If Nimrod overcome, I will be on his side. But if Abram overcome, I will be on his side. And so Haran died in the sight of Terah his father, where he was burned in the land of his nativity, in the furnace of the fire, which is the Kastai, had made for Abram his brother. So the ancient rabbis believe that the reason Haran was destroyed is because his heart was not right with the Lord and that he was hedging his bets and that he was going to take sides with whoever prevailed, whether that be Nimrod or Abram. Now, it's interesting, in Genesis 10, we're told about the genealogy of Shem all the way down to Terah, and that Terah had the three boys, Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and that Haran begat Lot. And then verse 28 is a very interesting verse. Genesis 10 tells us that Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in the Ur of the Chaldees. That's all we know, basically, about uh, Haran. But when you look at these words, we're told that Haran died before his father Terah. The word that they use for died means to be executed or put to death. And then this word before, that Haran died before his father, that word means in the sight of or in the presence of his father. And in the land of his nativity means his native land where he was born, which is the Ur of the Chaldees. So when you put this sentence in the Bible in context with what we just read in Jasher, it takes on a whole new life of its own. At first glance, it just says, Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in the Ur of the Chaldees. Most people would just see that as a miscellaneous detail. Haran died some way randomly, we're not told how, and he died before his father Terah. In other words, he died before Terah died. But actually, when you look at the etymology of the words, it is very consistent with what we just learned. Haran died by means of execution or being put to death in the sight of or in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his native birthplace, which was the Ur of the Chaldees. And so I believe that the Bible corroborates this story in the book of Jasher. Now you might be thinking, 
How can we trust this account in Jasher? It's such a supernatural account of how Abram's thrown in the fire and he walks around in the furnace for three days being preserved. How can we trust that account? But again, we have to go to the Bible to see if there's any confirmatory scriptures that would suggest such a thing. And as a matter of fact, we have almost an identical account with Daniel later on. And again, it happens to be in Babylon. This time it's not Nimrod, but rather it's Nebuchadnezzar, who is another archetype of Nimrod and another archetype of the Antichrist. And it's a very similar account where Nebuchadnezzar raises a golden idol and he tells the people to bow down to it. And Daniel's three buddies, the Hebrews, refused. And so Nebuchadnezzar pitches them in the fire. And they are supernaturally preserved. And so when you put that in context of the story we just read about Abram, then if God did it in future Babylon, why should we refuse to believe that he did it previously in the days of Nimrod? And here we see some old renditions. On the left, this is the rendition of Abram being tossed in the fire. And you even see an image of the soldiers who got too close, the 12 soldiers who died. Well, the same thing over here with Daniel's account. The three Hebrews got tossed into the furnace of the fire. And in that particular account, we have one who looks like the Son of God who comes to save them supernaturally. Of course, we understand now that this was Jesus Christ. This is what's referred to as a Christophany. This is the pre-incarnate Christ before he was born in the flesh who showed up supernaturally and delivered the Hebrews that day. And again, in this rendition, we see that there were soldiers who died because they got too close to the fire. In fact, when you read the account of Daniel, which we'll do in a moment, you'll see many very similar overlapping details to Abram's account. So if we go to Daniel 3 and read this account about Nebuchadnezzar, who was also a archetype or typology of Nimrod. In those days, he was the king and he made an image of gold, an idol, whose height was three score cubits. That's 60 feet. And the breadth thereof was six cubits. Notice that there's a lot of sixes. I think it's interesting that Nebuchadnezzar made an image 60 cubits high and six cubits wide, which is obviously a representation of 666. And he set it up in the province of Babylon. And then Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather together the princes, the governors, and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the councils, and the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the province to come to the dedication of the image. Now, that's exactly what we read in the Abram account, that Nimrod sent for all of the princes and the governors and the captains and the judges to come and witness the same thing. And whosoever falleth not down in worship shall the same hour be cast in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Wherefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came and accused the Jews. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the Proverbs of Babylon. That was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden images which thou hast set up. 
And Nebuchadnezzar spake, and he said to them, Is it true? Do you not serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? If so, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which you have set up. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and he commanded that they should heat the furnace seven times more than it was heated. Now, that's a very similar detail in the Abram account. They spent several days heating up the fiery furnace beyond what they normally did. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind them and cast them into the fiery furnace. Same details as Abram. Abram was also bound with cordage and, and passed into the fire. Therefore, because the king's commandments were urgent and the furnace was exceedingly hot, the flames of the fire slew the men that took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Once again, another corroborating detail. In Abram's account, the 12 soldiers that threw Abram in also were burned to death. And these three men fell down, bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished, and he rose up in haste, and he spake, and he said unto his counselors, did not we cast three men into the fire? They answered and said unto him, King, true, O king. And he answered and said, Well, I see four men loose and walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth man is like the Son of God. That's interesting verbiage that Nebuchadnezzar used. It wasn't like God, but it was like the Son of God. This is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace, and he spake, and he said, You servants of the Most High God, come forth, come hither. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth from the midst of the fire, and the princes and the governors and the captains and the king's counselors being gathered together saw these men, upon whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was a hair on their head singed, neither were their coats singed, that's very consistent with Abram's account where his lower garments were not singed. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and he said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had sent his angel and delivered his servants and trusted in him, and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their god. Once again, we see a similar situation. Here, Nebuchadnezzar is now praising these men for surviving the fire in an analogous way that Nimrod praised Abram for surviving the fire. Therefore, I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything against the God of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made a dunghill. And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. That's more or less what we see in the Abram account. Very many overlapping details. Continuing in the story, verse 45, and at the expiration of two years from Abram's going out of the fire, that is the 52nd year of his life, behold, King Nimrod sat in Babel upon the throne, and the king fell asleep, and he dreamed that he was standing with his troops and his hosts in a valley opposite the king's furnace. 
And he lifted up his eyes and he saw a man in the likeness of Abram coming forth from the furnace. And that he came and stood before the king with his drawn sword. And when the king fled from the man, for he was afraid, and while he was running, the man threw an egg upon the king's head, and the egg became a great river. And the king dreamed that all of his troops sank in that river and died, and the king took flight with three men who were before him, and he escaped. And the king looked at these men, and they were clothed in princely dresses as the garments of kings, and had the appearance and majesty of kings. And while they were running, the river again turned to an egg before the king, and there came forth from the egg a young bird which came before the king and flew at his head and plucked out the king's eyes. And the king was grieved at this sight, and he awoke out of his sleep, and his spirit was agitated, and he felt a great terror. So this is an interesting account where Nimrod is now having supernatural visions and dreams, and He's dreaming about a man coming out of the fiery furnace with a drawn sword. And this obviously represents Abram that, remember, there was a prophecy that in Abram's latter days, he would conquer the great king and his mighty lands. And so that's what this dream appears to be regarding. Now, when we get to this part about the king dreamed that all of his troops sank in the river and died and that the king took flight with three other men, and these three other men were dressed as kings and had the appearance of the majesty of kings, this is in reference to Genesis 14 about the battle of the kings, where the four kings of the north battle the five kings of the south. And that Nimrod, who is in Genesis 14 named Amraphel, joins the other three kings, including Shetelamor, and goes into this great battle. And we'll look at that here in a future account. And then lastly in this dream, he sees that there came forth from the egg, which came from the man who represented Abram, his seed, a young bird, which came before the king and plucked out his eyes. I believe that this is a representation of Esau. We know that Esau comes from Abram's lineage. Abram, Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob and Esau. And Esau is the one who ends up slaying Nimrod. And that's, in my opinion, likely what that dream represents. And so the king was grieved at this sight, and he awoke out of his sleep agitated with a great terror. And in the morning, the king rose from his couch in fear, and he ordered all the wise men and the magicians to come before him. And when the king related his dream to them, the wise servants of the king, a wise servant of the king, whose name was Anuki, and that's interesting because Anuki reminds me of the Anunnaki, and we did a lecture looking at them in the Old Testament, that the Anakims, which were a giant clan, of the Canaanites were actually pronounced Anuki. And so could this wise servant of the king be one of the Anakims? Perhaps. Anaki said to the king, this is nothing else but the evil of Abram and his seed, which will spring up against my Lord and king in the latter days. There's the confirmation there that this one who came from the egg this young bird who came from the egg, which would slay the king, 
here the wise servant is is confirming that this is the one who would slay Nimrod in his latter days and that is Esau Esau is one of the seeds of Abram and behold the day will come when Abram and his seed and the children of his household will war with my king and they will smite all the king's hosts and his troops and as to what thou hast said concerning three men which thou did see like unto thyself and which did escape this means that only thou will escape with three kings from the kings of the earth who will be with thee in battle again this is referring to the battle of the kings in the valley of Siddim in Genesis 14 which we will look at here in the next account and that which thou sawest of the river which turned to an egg at first and the young bird who plucked out thy eye this means nothing else but the seed of Abram who will slay the king that is Nimrod in the latter days that young bird has to be Esau this is my king's dream and this is the interpretation and the dream is true and the interpretation which thy servant has given thee is right now therefore my king surely thou knowest that it is now 52 years since the sages saw this very prophecy at the birth of Abram and if my king will suffer Abram to live in the earth it will be to the injury of my Lord and King for all the days that Abram liveth neither thou nor thy kingdom will be established for this was known formerly at his birth and why will not the king slay him that his evil may be kept from thee in the latter days and Nimrod hearkened to the voice of Anuki and he sent some of his servants in secret to go and seize Abram and to bring him before the king to suffer death but Eliezer Abram's servant who the king had given him was at the time in the presence of the king and he heard what Anuki had advised the king and what the king had said to cause Abram's death and Eliezer said to Abram hasten rise up and save thy soul that thou mayest not die through the hands of the king for thus did he see in a dream concerning thee and thus did Anuki interpret it and thus also did Anuki advise the king concerning thee so we see now that even though after Abram survived the fiery furnace that Nimrod praised him after having these haunting visions and dreams and after receiving the prophecy from Anuki that that meant that Abram and his seed would one day snuff out Nimrod now Nimrod is determined to wipe out Abram once again only the servant that he gave Abram Eliezer is now warning Abram that it's time for you to pack up and get out of Dodge and this is the predominant reason why Abram is going to flee from the Ur of the Chaldees this is God's providence and plan and God is now going to direct him to head towards the promised land and Abram hearkened to the voice of Eliezer and Abram hastened and he ran for safety to the house of Noah and his son Shem and he concealed himself there and found a place of safety and the king's servants came to Abram's house to seek him but they could not find him and they searched throughout the country and he was not to be found and they went and searched in every direction and he was not to be met with and when the king's servants could not find Abram they returned to the king but the king's anger against Abram was stilled and they did not find him and the king drove from his mind this matter concerning Abram and Abram was concealed in Noah's house for one month until the king had forgotten this matter 
but Abram was still afraid of the king. And Terah came to see Abram, his son, secretly in the house of Noah. And Terah was very great in the eyes of King Nimrod. And Abram said to his father, Dost thou not know that the king thinketh to slay me and to annihilate my name from the earth by the advice of his wicked counsel? Now whom hast thou here, and what hast thou in the land? Arise, let us go together to the land of Canaan, that we may be delivered from his hand, lest thou perish also through him in the latter days. Dost thou not know, or hast thou not heard, that it is not through love that Nimrod giveth thee all this honor, but it is only for his benefit that he has bestowed all of this good upon thee? And if he do unto thee greater good than this, surely these are only vanities of the world, for wealth and riches cannot avail in the day of wrath and anger. Now, therefore, hearken to my voice, and let us arise and go to the land of Canaan, out of the reach of injury from Nimrod, and serve thou the Lord who created thee in the earth, and it will be well with thee, and cast away all the vain things which thou hast pursuest. This is Abram talking to his father Terah. And Abram ceased to speak. And when Noah and his son Shem answered Terah, saying, True is the word which Abram has said to thee, Terah hearkened to the voice of his son Abram, and Terah did all that Abram said, for this was from the Lord that the king should not cause Abram's death. And so now we finally understand why it is that God chose Abram, the father of many nations, because Abram had served under the tutelage of Noah and Shem for basically 50 years now, and he was trained in the ways of the Lord. And it's in this account that we see that Nimrod is determined to wipe out Abram, and Abram has already served his, his providential role and function in the nation of, Abram, of Babylon, and now it's the prophetic time for him to leave, and he's able to convince his father Terah that everything Nimrod gave you, including being the prince of the host, was really just for vanity and for his own gains, and he didn't really love you. And so Abram's pleading with his father, Terah, to come with him. And we know, according to the book of Genesis, that Abram and his father, Terah, and his nephew, Lot, and all of their servants fled the Ur of the Chaldees and headed toward the Promised Land. So you can see how God is working through this whole story that... <clears throat> It's all based on God's prophetic timeline. But ultimately, after Abram had spent the time with Noah and he learned what he needed to learn and he grew up to be the man that he was, Nimrod pursued him heavily. And there were many years there where Nimrod didn't even know Abram was alive. But eventually Abram came out of hiding. He confronted Nimrod. A battle began. Abram's own brother was killed in the process. And you know, this was the time for Abram to hit the road because Nimrod was determined to sack and kill Abram. And so, you know, Abram's able to convince his father, Terah, that there's nothing left here for you in Babylon. Come with us. Come with me and my brother Haran's son, Lot, and his daughters, who Abram's marrying. He's marrying one of them, Sarai. And let's hit the road and go to the promised land. And of course, this was always God's plan for to, to lead Abram out of um, Canaan, or excuse me, out of the Ur of the Chaldees and, and bring him into Canaan, which we're going to learn later, there are giants in the land, and Abram's going to have to, he's going to have to deal with these giants, but 
it's not his job. God's not going to put it on his back to wipe out these giants. He's going to, he's going to mingle with them a little bit. Um, there's a couple of deals. He, you know, Abram's going to come into the promised land. He's going to be a sojourner and a squatter for a period of time. And then um, eventually he's going to end, they're going to end up back in Egypt for 400 years. And it's not till Moses liberates the Egyptians, I mean, the Israelites, and then Joshua takes over that we do, that do we see the commission of Joshua to clean out the promised land of all the giants, the Amorites and all them and take it over. So Abram still has some interesting times ahead. We still have the battle to look at in Genesis 14, which is with um, the Shetel Amor and Amraphel, who we now know is Nimrod. He's been renamed after the tower event. And, um, and so the Bible has more to say about Nimrod. He's just under a different alias. And that'll become pertinent later because there's going to be a battle where they take over the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and they take all the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, which happens to be Lot, Abram's nephew. Um, you know, he, he was foolish enough to move into the city of Sodom, which is a, a serpent seed city that comes from, you know, Canaan and, and the Canaanites. And um, we know that he takes a wife from Sodom. So he kind of breaks the the, 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 the genealogical law there of mixing the two seed lines. And, um, you know, Abram being the good guy that he is, when Amraphel and Shetel Amor sack Sodom and they take all the spoils of war, including Lot and his wife, Abram decides that he ain't going to stand for that. So he goes after him and he and he's going to tussle with those guys and he's going to uh, get Lot back. So there's, there's, there's a lot more to the story left ahead. On the next lecture, we're going to look at a really fascinating um, situation with Nimrod. I just wanted to really paint a picture of Nimrod as the Gibberim or the Nephilim, one of the giants, one of the hybrids. Um, show, show you what the old timers thought about it, what the, what the patriarchs thought about it. And um, we're going to look at a movie, a very interesting movie that I think totally encapsulates that era, the, the direct post-flood era of Nimrod in really an amazing way um, that was probably spiritually motivated by the enemy um, when this movie came out back in the 70s and 80s. And we'll see if you can guess what movie it is. But on the next Seed Wars lecture, we're going to do a quick analysis of Nimrod himself in terms of was he or was he not possibly a Nephilim? And then we're going to look at a movie that um, just has some pretty significant um, archetype and typology in it in regards to Nimrod and, and the, the days of Babel. So that's it for today. Godspeed. We'll see you on the next one.